folks, welcome to Socrates in the City, Oxford edition. Thank you. Yeah. What we have today is, without a doubt, extra special. Uh, it is sort of, it's news, I guess. I don't know that we've done anything before that's news. It may be news uh, to the folks watching it, may have not heard of it before, but this is actual news. This is uh, a big deal uh, in the world of biblical studies, in the world of historical studies. This is a big deal, and I have the privilege uh, of interviewing the author of a new book, The Great Christ Comet. I think uh, Dr. Nickel, the author, pronounces it Great Christ Comet. <laughs> but uh, wherever you're from, it's really great. And um, I had the joy of reading this book, and it is so exciting. So I hope we can give you a, uh, a soupçon, something, a taste of what this is. I hope you'll read the book uh, yourself. Um, but to give you a background of what we're talking about, first of all, uh, Dr. Nickel uh, claims and I think proves, that's what makes this so big, uh, to have discovered what is the thing that we call the Star of Bethlehem. Just uh, big stuff here. So uh, in any case, so he's the author of this book, which will be just out now, uh, The Great Christ Comet, released officially September 30th, uh, 2015. The Great Christ Comet, Revealing the True Star of Bethlehem. Previously, he's written From Hope to Despair in Thessalonica. Sounds like an independent film. (laughs) Previously, a teacher at the University of Cambridge. By the way, he got his PhD uh, at the other place. Uh, And he is the professor, uh, he was professor of New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in my neck of the woods, New England. He has devoted himself, uh, to say the least, to biblical research. His articles have appeared in publications such as the Journal of Theological Studies and the Times of London. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, um, I think uh, before I introduce him, I want to say once again that we have had uh, such a joy doing this, and it's such a big deal for us to take this franchise, Socrates and City, here to Oxford. I want to thank those who made it possible. We've had... Uh, three sponsors in particular, the Trout family, uh, Ken and Lisa Trout of Dallas, Susie and Jerry Wilson of Dallas, all dear friends, and a very dear friend, Sharon Vanderpaul um, of Grand Rapids, Michigan, who has actually joined us here. Sharon, thank you very much. We are all in your debt. Uh, this wouldn't be possible without these generous sponsors. So now, please give a warm Socrates in the City Oxford edition welcome to my guest, Dr. Colin R. Nickel, Dr. Nickel, welcome to the stage, to this forum. So glad to have you here. Have a seat. The first copy of the book, there it is. You have got to be excited. Well, it is, it's the culmination of four and a half years of, of a lot of work. Essentially, it's, I'm a biblical scholar, so it was really a, a journey a long journey into astronomy and little by little bit conquering more and more and eventually, yeah. slowly but surely in stages coming up with it and, and many eureka moments along the way. So, yeah. so it really is, 
it's, it's exciting. It's kind of nerve-wracking, too, presenting the findings to, yeah. to the world. Really. Well, it shouldn't be that nerve-wracking because a lot of extraordinary people have vetted it, people with real credentials, not like Eric Metaxas. Let me see. Um, people uh, like I have just heard about, how do we pronounce this, Simon G- Gathercall? Yeah, Simon Gathercall, yeah. Gathercall. Gathercall. Um, he says, the most comprehensive interdisciplinary synthesis of biblical and astronomical data yet produced. It is a remarkable feat that a biblical scholar has been able to master the scientific data at such a level of erudition. I don't think you need to be nervous uh, anymore. The great John Lennox, professor of mathematics here at Oxford, has written an outstanding book, quite breathtaking in the range of its scholarship, A Real Tour de Force. J.P. Moreland, distinguished professor of philosophy at Biola, has called it a stunning book, now the definitive treatment of the subject. I think you can relax. Uh, I think it has been vetted. Uh, These people might easily have said, fascinating, but I'm not convinced. They've said the opposite. This is exciting, and if you're not excited, I can be excited enough for the both of us, because I've read this. This is exciting. It's huge. So before we get into the details, um, let's go back to the beginning. First of all, uh, your story, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in the north, on the north coast of Northern Ireland, um, a little town called Coleraine, not far from the Giant's Causeway. Dunluce Castle, which was uh, a place that C.S. Lewis uh, liked to go. Uh, so a beautiful Causeway Coast, one of the most gorgeous parts of the world, really. The famous Causeway of Finn McCool. That's, you, you, you know if, your if stuff? Only, if only they could find the bones of Finn McCool, that would be something for a book. You didn't know? No. They, 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 found, they have his skull in, in, in some uh, castle someplace. Well, okay, so you grew up there. What, uh, what was your upbringing like, and when did you think you would be interested in the life of a scholar and a biblical scholar? Well, I grew up uh, in the Troubles, really. Uh, the Troubles were only getting going when I was born. Um, it was a strange time in Northern Ireland. There was a lot of kind of animosity between the different sides. Although where I lived, it was relatively mild. Um, I, I did, in my hometown, um, my dentist, his building was destroyed by the IRA, and I remember him showing me his, his Bible that had come through the, the bomb. Um, the police used to check outside the cars uh, during church time to make sure no one was planting a bomb. Uh, there was a little bit of kind of insecurity and, and some... You know, you were driving down the road and the, you'd see the military, the, the English soldiers and Scottish soldiers with their, with their guns pointing out the back right at you when you're in the car behind, things like that that you don't forget. Um, and Northern Ireland was a, an interesting place to grow up in that respect. But, you know, I, I was relatively sheltered from that. Uh, and I grew up in a, a Christian home, was always, uh, always from the earliest age, loved the Bible, um, even I remember getting my first biblical book when I was seven or eight years old. Uh, I love theology. I mostly love studying the Bible. Um, and really... So your parents were serious about their faith? Yes. So they weren't and, just nominal Christians. They were quite serious. Yes, and they, they always encouraged me to, uh, to do whatever I wanted to do in terms of, uh, uh, in my case, studying the Bible. Um, so really from an early age, when I was about 13 or 14, I felt a very strong desire and call into uh, devoting myself to, to Christian work and ultimately my passion of studying the Bible. 
it's you know it's a, it's an extraordinary and a rare thing for for someone that young to be excited about studying the Bible. You realize that. Well, or did you yeah. have a little gang uh, who, no, who there was specialized no <laughs> in exegesis? You'd go back behind the uh, the supermarket where nobody could see you and do your secret exegesis. No, until I, the cops came. No, I definitely was uh, rare or unique, depending on your perspective. Uh-huh. That was something I did myself that not many other people true were were doing. So, uh, but it was it was my hobby. It was I, I just. I even tried writing little books and things like that when I was that age. So I always had a kind of desire and love for uh, research and, and writing. Amazing. Okay, so what, what happens? Where did you go to school, um, to college? I remember getting to that stage where they're talking, the, the school's talking about where you're going to go to university, what, what are you going to do? Um, and they were encouraging me to go to, the, the school was encouraging me to go to uh, me and British University, uh, Cambridge or Oxford or, or somewhere like that. Um, and I felt that I should go to uh, the United States uh, to have a, a different kind of experience, a, um, a, a more focused biblical uh, education and uh, somewhere where I could specialize more in the things I wanted to do because I, w- I was so sure that I wanted to be a biblical, to do to be biblical studies and to, in a sense, do ministry in that way uh, that that was a very natural choice for me. So already at age 17 or 18, you were that focused on, on yeah, what yeah. you wanted to do. So you decided to go not to Oxford nor Cambridge, but to Moody Bible Institute. I went to, I went to Moody Bible Institute. Um, That's the Oxbridge of Chicago. <laughs> it's, um, it's actually in its own way, of course, very distinguished. But what a surprise, the idea that you'd come from Northern Ireland, north of Belfast, to Chicago. Well, it was a honestly brilliant experience in terms of being in the center of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, at that stage, Cabrini Green was was a, was a pretty rough neighborhood. We were right beside it. It's all condos now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's not true. Uh, well, it's not, well, it's not too bad. It's, well, uh, yeah. Compared to what it was at that stage, and so we but we used to go into that neighborhood uh, and uh, kind of have the, the the tension of of going in there and the gunshots. Because our, our, our dorms were right Why there. Why would you, you go into that neighborhood? Well, we were doing, a lot of times, children's work. Uh, ministry. ministry. Ministry in that area. Uh, uh, as well as that, I had opportunities to do research. Uh, a lot of independent studies to really do research, get my teeth uh, into research in that way. So mm. uh, that was great. And I also got leadership experiences and trips to Africa. Mm-hmm. And, and then, okay, and then you went to Trinity Seminary also in Chicago. That's right, yeah. And then when, how long were you in the States? Uh, two years at Trinity after four years. Uh, Did you go to Gordon-Conwell immediately after that? No. When I finished up at, at Trinity, I had a Master of Divinity. And then I went to St. Andrews with a view to doing a PhD there in the Book of Revelation under uh, Richard Bauckham. A PhD Who? in the Book of Revelation. Well, it didn't That sounds up... like a joke, you know that. It's like, yeah, that dude's got a PhD in the Book of Revelation, man. Watch, watch out. You actually, so what happened? You, you go to St. Andrews, you don't, get, uh, you don't get a PhD, you end up getting your PhD at Cambridge. Well, what happens, I went to, I went to St. Andrews, uh, and then when I was, no sooner had I arrived than I really realized that my specialty shouldn't be the book of Revelation, but the Apostle Paul. Uh, I felt that was a better course of action for me. In particular, I wanted to study Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Which you did. Which, which I eventually did. In Cambridge. In Cambridge, yeah. 
but we were living there for a long time, uh, and, and a lot of time I was kind of, you know, what, what's the point of us living here? Because it wasn't actually at St. Andrews, but yet we're living near St. Andrews in a lovely little fishing village called Anstruther, which was a great experience in many ways, right in the Firth of Forth. The what? We, we were in this, uh, the Firth of Forth. Yeah, it's a t- tongue twister there. The Firth of Forth. You got it. Um, do, do I? The Firth of Forth, okay. Yeah, the Firth of Forth. So we're looking right across to Edinburgh in the distance, and then you see... Uh, any time there were storms, and there were quite a few nor'easters, as they talked about, they would whack the wall, and then the spray would come up, you know, the four stories of, of the, the dwelling that we were in. It was really amazing. And then oh. the door to get into our apartment was on the side right by the, the Firth of Forth. So when the spray would hit, <laughs> you, you, had, you had about that 20 seconds to get into the door, get the door unlocked, and get it open. And if you fumbled in any way... Even if you're wearing your suit, you were absolutely drenched. So so and that happened to me on the The Firth of Forth was, a, was a scary place. It would make you want to go to the pub for a fifth. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. Good night. Uh, okay, so but we, let, let's leap ahead. So you, um, you know what you want to study. You study Paul here at Cambridge. Um, you study Thessalonians here at Cambridge. And you, you come out with this, this book. I guess this book must be the, the book version of your PhD thesis. Well, that's right. What ended up happening was the Scottish office, because I'd lived in Scotland, ended up paying for my whole PhD. Uh-huh. And then when I was at Cambridge, I studied under the Lady Margaret's professor there, uh, who was a Pauline expert. And then from that, uh, ended up, my research topic was on 1 and 2 Thessalonians, or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, in particular, looking at the situation undergirding the letters and seeing, does the situation in 1 Thessalonians... Uh, can it be reconciled with the situation in 2 Thessalonians? Because a lot of scholars were saying 2 Thessalonians wasn't by Paul, 1 Thessalonians was. And so I, this was a way of, of demonstrating that the two letters fit together and that uh, there was a continuity. Uh, and it also, of course, opened up their eyes to the situation of an early Greek Christian church. So, Since uh, I don't know that anyone else here is a biblical scholar, um, what... What draws you in? In other words, is it that you're hunting for something? You feel like there's a puzzle or a code or that you can discover something, that there are hidden things in the text, that there are things that have never... I mean, because, you know, it would seem to me um, that, oh, you know, everything that's been discovered roughly has been discovered. People have poured over these texts endlessly. Uh, How could there be anything that hasn't already been um, discovered? It doesn't seem to me that that's the case as we talk. No, it's not. A lot of people, strangely, do have that attitude. Uh, but I think it's a, a major mistake. Uh, much like a scientist uh, it sees all kinds of mysteries and things to explore, in my opinion, the biblical studies is, is full of the same things. But that's, uh, but that's the difference. In other words, science, studying this world, you can see how this world uh, would have the potential you know, for infinite study, right? I mean, there's, there's so much here that, you know, we don't know what's, below, what's inside a quark or what you can go down, 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 infinitely down into things to the infinitesimal level and then you can go out and you can get... There, there, there is so much. But the biblical text, unless you believe that it was inspired by the God outside the universe, unless you believe that, you would think that it's fairly finite. You know, and like how much can be discovered in, um, you know, uh, Great Expectations by Dickens. At some point, 
people have figured out this symbolizes this, that symbolizes that. Or it, it, in other words, talking about whether something has infinite possibilities or infinite depth gets to the very heart of what you believe about scripture. Well, I think you're right. Uh, right and it's a yes and no in the sense of it's yes because it's certainly in my experience, it's, there's almost a test when you're reading scripture. Uh, it's very easy to cop out in your exegesis to, to look at the text and say, uh, this doesn't seem to make sense on this level and then give up on it. And that's really what a lot of scholars will do at different points and say, you know, it doesn't make sense. I'm just going to say Paul contradicts himself or whatever at this point. And there is a sense in which uh, if you have a high view of Scripture, you, you hang in with it. It's a test of faith, really, uh, at that point. And so you, you push and you push and you search in the expectation that there is an answer, never forcing the data, of course, but always seeking to be honest and with this a, a kind of pursuing an answer. So it does lead to a more rigorous approach to biblical study. Yeah. On the other hand, I think even those who don't have a particularly high view of Scripture would still be convinced that there's lots in the New Testament and Old Testament that, that to be discovered right. and to be mined. And, and a lot of times they come at that by uh, adopting a particular literary approach yeah. or sociological Well, that, I mean, approach. again, that's like literary criticism. But what we're talking about here, at least what I want to talk about, is this idea that you've got a view of Scripture that says this is not just a literary text. This is the Word of God. And if that is true, it has infinite depth and it is uh, infinitely and eternally true. And that changes how you study it. In other words, you have a faith that I can push and dig in any direction and I'm not going to hit bedrock. I can, I can just keep going and discovering more and more and more. The riches are, uh, so to speak, infinite. I'm sure not everybody approaches uh, Scripture that way. And it, and it seems to get to the idea behind what you've done here. In other words, what, what you have done in this new book, The Great Christ Comet, is that you have assumed that the Star of Bethlehem existed and every description of it is true and therefore must make some kind of sense. What sense does it make? No one has ever made sense of it before. 100%. That's all of my scholarship is motivated by that. Uh, it's, I am convinced that it does make sense. I'm willing to live with the tension of not understanding something, uh, although uh, I need to understand it. So uh, it drives me crazy if I don't understand it. Uh. So, um, yeah, I won't stop until I've got my mind around it. And, uh, and I, I, part of that process is praying, um, asking God to help me understand it. So my faith does engage with my scholarship at that level, and there are some things where, uh, you know, you can study it for a long time and just not get it. Because a lot of biblical exegesis is um, studying it, reflecting it, doing the historical study, all that you do. But at the end of the day, it's those flashes of inspiration which suddenly open up your mind. Yeah. And, and it's just... Uh, like a whole new level becoming... Right. I mean, but scientists uh, say the same thing, exact yeah. same thing, that they study a problem or a math problem for years, and, and suddenly, you know, you know uh, what the carbon atom looks like, you know, if it comes to you in a flash or in a dream or something. Uh, I've never dreamt about carbon, I'm just saying. Now, let's, let's go back. So you, are, you, you, you do this work in Thessalonians at Cambridge. 
what comes next and what leads you to this subject? When I finished up at Cambridge, I taught there. I, I did some teaching in terms of Greek, uh, which was a really fun experience. Uh, I did some supervisions uh, in the area of New Testament and uh, then examined uh, a little bit. And while I, was also, while I was doing that, I was also looking for a more long-term uh, arrangement. And uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary got in contact with me. Uh, I had sent in an application called, pretty much a cold application. So five uh, years you're in, and then in Massachusetts yeah. on the North Shore uh, teaching New yeah, Testament. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a phenomenal place. Uh, um, great great uh, faculty, uh, wonderful students, really a phenomenal place to study. Uh, was it there that, that you stumbled on this, or was it after that? No, no, it wasn't. Uh, I, I was working on a lot of uh, um, projects, really there, getting kind of insights into a lot of different projects while I was there, uh, but not this. this, this. No, okay, well, what do you, when, you say, when you say insights into different kinds of projects, what does that mean? Future projects? Other projects I've been working on. Uh, basically... I, there was a long time uh, when I was at Gordon Conwell when you know, I'm preparing a class, uh, a lecture on, uh-huh. on something, and as I'm preparing it, I'm thinking, but I, you know, this is a, this is a, a big puzzle or a big mystery. You see something, scholars, and, I, and I go, well, I know what that I can, I know what that is. I need to be able to develop it. Mm. The problem is, I was so busy and working so hard at, at Gordon Conwell, I wasn't okay. able to really develop the, okay. the insights. So that was building up. Uh, within me as a real tension uh, and there came a point uh, I just it, it almost became unbearable for me personally because I knew I had to write I, I, there were so many projects that I knew were extremely important okay and so and you're excited about these things really obviously excited. because you're you're finding things that haven't been found before insights that, that haven't been seen so you have a passion to get on with those things and at some point I guess one of those things is this thing well, what happens is then I leave, I eventually leave Gordon Conwell to, to go and devote myself to writing. And so I returned to Northern Ireland to do that. Um, the nice thing about Northern Ireland is it's a, it's a peaceful spot. I don't get a lot of interruptions. Um, I'm able to just do my business and, and be devoted to yeah. what I'm doing. So I, I was there working on a lot of other projects. And really what happened in regard to this book, my father-in-law... Uh, he was really excited by a DVD that had come out, I think, 2007, uh, by Rick Larson on the Star of Bethlehem. Okay, I saw that. Yeah. And that, that, that um, really fascinated me because I thought, boy, oh boy, if we could ever really figure out what, is, what was the Star of Bethlehem, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a big capital M mystery that's been hanging out there for 2,000 years. Yeah. So that's what pulled you into this subject. Well, yes and no. I, 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 another yes and no. In a sense, first of all, I, I initially wasn't at all interested in the subject. I, I had my other topics, which I was getting insights into, right, and right. I felt like I was breaking new ground in. And, and then my father-in-law asked me to do this, and 
Uh, he's a nice guy. So I asked you to do what? To, to watch this DVD and respond yeah. to it. So I, I didn't want to offend him. Oh, to that watch really the DVD, well, it's not too much. So, yeah. No, no, it's okay. not much. But, it, but I, you know, then you've got the... You but know. this is the four and a half years of work after that. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching this DVD knowing that I have to give my response to my father-in-law and find a gracious way, if I don't like it, of telling him I don't like it. You know, so, so, so there's a little bit of family... Okay, you know, so you watched yeah, it yeah, you know. and it didn't sell you. No, no, it didn't sell me. I mean, it was beautiful production. I mean, uh, it was yeah. really classily yeah. done, you know, and, and uh, most impressive in that regard. But, but there, were, there, was, there were enough things in the presentation which struck me as implausible. And, re- for example, having to redate uh, Herod's death uh, from the, what's all historians virtually would, would accept that Herod died in 4 B.C., but that, you know, that particular view had to, has to shift the date a few years in order to kind of accommodate So that was a big, that was a big flag for you? That's one of a number of, of problems. And there are a number yeah. of things like that. See, that's the thing. Someone like me watching that, I would never pick up on that. And, of course, I didn't pick up on that. But you're a biblical scholar. You, you picked up on these things. So you watched it, and you weren't convinced. No, no, there are a number of problems with it in terms of even... I knew enough about... Uh, you know, the ancient views to know that Leo was never regarded as a constellation of the Jews and this whole idea that Regulus, the star, which is the main star in uh, the constellation Leo, that, that the claim being made in the program was that that was the Messiah star in some sense. Because it's the uh, king, yeah, Regulus. The king, exactly. Okay, well, so, you know, that, I knew that that's not, it's not really the, certainly in terms of Leo, that that's an invented uh, association with Israel. The, the ancients didn't. You, you thought, okay, so you thought he was stretching some things and eventually it falls apart for you. So what, what happens now? Well, that it drives me back to the biblical text at that point. It did. Not necessarily because I wanted to resolve the issue, because I w- wanted to answer the questions from my father-in-law, right? So I'm trying to find nice, delicate ways of, of putting things in nice, succinct uh, never, kind The of thought of having <laughs> to do an exegesis for your father-in-law yeah, has yeah. never occurred to me. <laughs> Uh, it's a heck of a life you've got. So, well, so tell me, um, you go in, and, and do you so, become so I, more compelled by this as you do your exegesis? Well, as I'm doing, as I'm looking at Matthew chapter 2, I, I, I'm starting to, to see, obviously, problems with, more problems with what, uh, the, that kind of view that Rick Larson was promoting, but also uh, starting to do a little bit of a reading around the, to- the topic, dif- the different views on the Star of Bethlehem, and increasingly seeing the problems with all the major views. And yes, as you say earlier, there's that, but, but the, wait a minute, that's the, what it kicks in. This really did happen. I'm convinced it really did happen. It, it, it's unlikely to be a miracle as such because it's said to be uh, a star. It's said to, it's viewed by professional astronomers and astrologers. It does what a star does. It rises, you know, first appearance, then it rises, standing over. These are all things that were said in the ancient documents of an actual astronomical Remember that uh, most people listening to this don't uh, recall what the scriptural text says about the star of Bethlehem. So refresh us. I mean, I remembered when I was reading your book, I was astounded to see for the first time things that, I mean, I had read them before, but, you know, the idea that it stood over the house or it did this or it did that, I thought... I've never really, because many of us inadvertently pick up the Christmas version of this, that there's a manger and a stable and a star above it, and that's the end of the story. But 
when you read the text, it's much more complicated. It's extremely complicated. And when you look at how complicated it is, it creates huge problems. It doesn't really make uh, easy sense, obviously. And so I assume that's what happened with you. You're reading it, and you're trying to figure out what could it be that fits all these descriptions. Are these descriptions accurate, or has the text kind of... uh, spun the, you know, put some English on the ball so that it moves a little bit this way when it needs to be really this is the translate. And you're, you're now responsible to figure this out. Yeah, well, essentially, that's, that's the, the issue right there. You're, you're looking at the different views, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, at every, every one of the views at some point backs off of a kind of straightforward reading of what Matthew says. Uh, you know, Matthew opens up by saying that these magi come uh, and they, they, are, they, they make this journey to Jerusalem. They arrive in the city and they go around asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we uh, have seen his star at its rising and we have come to worship him. Uh, then, it, then they go, they meet with Herod, Herod the Great, and notice I didn't say great. I could have said it that way. Yeah, but great. How did you do that? <laughs> Herod the Great. I've been in America long enough to try and... How did you do that? <laughs> they meet with Herod. Herod passes, on, Herod passes on the information they need, which is where is the Messiah to be born. He, Herod himself, in the meantime, has found out from the, from the Jewish teachers that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, so he passes this information on to the Magi and then inquires from the Magi, well... When did the star first appear? And that's a very strange question, really. But it's a very important question. When did the star first appear? And he ascertains from them when it appeared. The Magi then go, having been deluded by Herod, they go to Bethlehem in pursuit of the Messiah. Wait, having been deluded by Herod? In other words, they didn't realize that Herod had bad motives in, in basically sending them as his ambassadors to Bethlehem in a search for Messiah. Uh-huh. Because ultimately Herod wanted, of course, to kill the baby, uh, the baby Messiah. What, so he's deputizing them to find the Messiah yeah. so that he can kill the Messiah. Yes. Okay, I'd never heard that before. They were to come back to report to Herod uh, where he was. Herod had, had really a twofold plan in mind. The first one was targeted assassination. That's plan A, where he finds out effectively precisely where the Messiah is located within Bethlehem, and then he sends his men down to slaughter the Messiah. That's, if you want to put it in his terms, probably the cleanest way of dealing with his problem. If it doesn't work, his backup is to then have a more broad-scale slaughter of the infants of an appropriate age in Bethlehem and the surrounding district what to would make the, sure that he can kill the Messiah. What would the, the population, roughly speaking, have been of Bethlehem during this time? Because we kind of hear this, the slaughter of the innocents. What, what are we talking about? It was a village? It's a village. Uh, you know, you're probably talking, there's, there's a lot of different estimates, um, but in terms of the, the, the children, you're probably talking no more than uh, in the Bethlehem and surrounding district, probably no more than 20 to 40 children being killed. Of course, that's a lot of it's, but it's one of these things, again, it's like when you read scripture, it's, you've heard it a million times, it's like reading a fairy tale, it's kind of, but then when you actually think that, no, this didn't happen once upon a time, it happened not long ago in historical time where you have an historical figure uh, sending uh, his thugs to murder 20 to 40 infants, it, it is an absolutely 
unthinkable thing for, for us, really, that, that well, level yeah. of brutality. Um, but that's, of course, it, it makes perfect sense when you know the, the situation. Well, you know, we know that Herod was from Josephus. We know he was, and especially in his final years, a vicious king, and very paranoid. He killed three of his own sons for conspiring against him. He killed one of his wives. He had actually set it up so that a nobleman, one from every noble family, would be killed at the point of his own passing to ensure that there would be weeping at his funeral. It's, th- th- this stuff, you know, uh, it's very hard for us to get our heads around this, but we need to understand this is history, this is true. Well, so, okay, uh, so let's go back. You, you say that the, the, the Magi have been following the star. They came from where? Someplace in Iraq? Most, most probably Babylon. Babylon was really the, the NASA, if you want, of the ancient world. Uh, NASA? Yeah, if I'm trying to put it in American terms uh-huh. here. You know, it's, it's the NASA of the ancient world. Mission uh, control. They have records going back to you know, the 8th century or beyond B.C. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, records of, of uh, astronomical phenomena. Uh, you know, and we have uh, records or leftovers of some of those uh, today. So we, we know a good bit about it, and it was famed th- throughout the ancient world, Babylonian astronomy. And how far would the trip take, I think you write about this in the book, from Babylon to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem? It's, it's, I mean, as a crow flies, it's about 550 miles. Okay, but they weren't riding a crow. <laughs> so this would have taken them how long with camels and that kind of thing? Well, a, 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 camel, a camel caravan travels at approximately the speed of a human walking because usually a human is leading the, the lead camel. So, so uh, three miles an hour. Yeah, two, two to three miles an hour, uh, and depending on terrain also, obviously. So you're expecting it to take something in the range of a month, give or take a little. Okay, so they traveled for a month to see this Messiah. So clearly, whatever they witnessed, astrologically speaking, is huge. They well, no, it's a, it's a huge... You make a very good point because, uh, you know, we're so used to the kind of nice Christmas story where it, it almost doesn't, it lacks the reality and the, and the grit of history. These are real astrologers and astronomers who spend their lives observing the stars. Yeah. Uh, every day they're keeping records. Uh, they're also doing astrology where there are people that come in to get their feet and they're accessing their records to answer these questions and come But, up but with in this case, in other words, they're saying that the stars have told them that a great king has been yeah. born. A I'm king's... not just a great king, the Messiah, the Jewish king. The Jewish Messiah. So even though they're in Babylon, they care about this? What sense do they have about the Jews and the Jewish Messiah? Oh, exactly. Well, 550 this is, miles away. Well, this is part of the, a key part of the, the, the mystery. Because here they come from Babylon asking the Jews, they come to Judea and ask the Jews, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So they've interpreted it. Uh, interpreted what they've seen in the eastern sky to be an actual uh, sign of the Messiah's birth. And they're so confident about this, they actually come expecting to find a newborn Messiah. So whatever they've seen has obviously been deeply impacting, has shaken their world, and led them to do something which uh, was really extraordinary. Okay, but, but in Babylon, astrologers would have had a sense of the Jewish Messiah, would have understood that the Jews are awaiting Messiah? We know from Tacitus 
that there was a broad expectation within the ancient, there was broad knowledge in the ancient uh, world and the ancient Near East of messianic expectation. Okay. Okay. And, and so it does, it, it raises the question, what did they see? And that is really, strangely enough, a question that not many people ask. I was going to say, I never asked that uh, until I watched the 2007 DVD, uh, which fooled me, um, and until I read your book, to see how complex it is, that there's so many things in the text that have to be reconciled, and it's effectively impossible to do, except I think that you've done it. But, but So at what point... Uh, did the penny drop for you? So you start studying this. What, what's that process like? Well, it's, it, it, was, it was a process that had various kind of eureka moments uh, along with a lot of hard labor. Um, when did you think you were onto it? Well, I, was, uh, I had been doing some work on comets and asteroids as part of general reading, and then I was, uh, and, uh, along with my kind of basic reading in the Star of Bethlehem, and really then one day my wife asked me, well, what do you think it is? Because obviously it's her father that was sending me the... He's DVD. still in the picture? <laughs> Holy cow. Did you dedicate the book to him? No, no, no. Did you throw a copy at him? Okay, so, so you... But, but I still... I'm just thinking that you... You know, you're, you're doing this research. At what point do you think... I think I know what it well, is. This it's is a it. comet. Well, this is it, yeah. because my, my wife then said to me, well, what do you think it is? And in answer to the question, I kind of, at that moment, put, put, put everything I'd been doing in separate arenas together. And I said, it seems to me it has to be a comet. Uh, only a comet could do what the star does. Okay, now I'm guessing that before this whole thing, you didn't know much about comets, well, I had been reading a little bit about, as part of a broader reading, about comets and everything. The, the remarkable thing, and this stands Independent true, of this. Yes, but, well, as, as part of this and independent of this. As part of what I, everything I find, and this actually remains true for, for four years, every single thing I find out about comets fit perfectly. Nothing didn't. And that was the amazing thing. I mean, if you're thinking about, uh, for example... The star, what do we know? We know when the star appeared, first appeared over a year beforehand, and we know that the star uh, remained visible for a long time. Yeah, that's so it, strange right there. So it suddenly appears, and then it remains visible. Yeah. Right? Well, that, that alone, if it's visible for more than a year, can only really be explic- explained with reference to either a supernova, which yeah. is a massive nuclear explosion of, of a star, which causes the, the star to become incredibly bright, or a, a great comet, right? And it has to be a, a really great comet to, to do that. Like, and there's plenty of comets that are in that historically, if you go back over the last couple of centuries, that would attain to that. But that's still a great comet. If you don't mind explaining, because I know there are many people, and I'm probably one of them, it doesn't really understand what is a comet. You hear about comets... Uh, I, for many years, looked forward tremendously to uh, 1986 because I couldn't wait to see Halley's Comet. And Halley's Comet was a bust. (laughs) It was very disappointing. Not as disappointing, of course, as the great comet Kahootek, which was also a bust. But in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this, and I never really looked deeply into it. What exactly is a comet? 
A comet is effectively a what uh, astronomers now call a an icy dirt ball. Okay. So you, you don't. That, how dare you? Um, I think when you say an icy dirt ball, okay, those of us uh, who don't study astronomy don't understand when you say icy. What, what ice? I mean, we think of snowballs. We think of slush. An icy dirt ball. Does that mean um, that it's something ga- uh, gaseous that has turned to liquid and solid and is going through the universe? When you say ice, well, it's not H2O ice. No, it's, when astronomers talk about ices, they're referring to different uh, chemicals which are stored. Each, each comet really has a unique uh, concoction of chemicals that make up its ices. Uh, and those ices are packed within the comet and then surrounded by dust. Um, but how do they form? I mean, there are no planets like this. No. Well, that's a, they're said to be, they're reckoned to be the leftovers from the birth of the solar system. Um, so... Uh, what do you mean the leftovers? Nobody used them and they... <laughs> effectively, they're, 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 that's, they're, they're regarded... They were produced as, when the solar system was produced... Um, the solar system, not the universe and not the Milky Way. Solar system, solar system. So our solar system, our star system, when it was formed, somehow created these comets which are still in orbit in our solar system? Yeah, the, I mean, there are reckoned to be uh, billions of comets. In uh, our solar system? Yeah. Billions. That's amazing. I'm, I'm just astounded. So comets do not travel between solar systems? No, no, no. They're within solar systems. So, they're they're, so, so the gravity of the sun is what determines yes. their path. That's true of all comets. The comets, uh, there are different comets, uh, to get a little bit technical. There are short period comets, which ones that really have a very short orbit. They, they, go, they complete one revolution around the sun in you know, less than 200 years. Mm. Uh, you would call those short period comets. And there are long period comets which take more than that, up to thousands, millions of years. But how now, the big great comets in history are, generally speaking, long-period comets, right. with the exception of the one you mentioned, Halley's Comet, which historically has had a lot of very dramatic uh, shows. 1066? Yeah, exactly. And all that? Yeah. Um, how big are these comets, and don't they eventually burn out? I guess this is what confuses me. I'm, I'm trying to think about something like this, uh, firing through the universe, the idea that that could happen for many, many thousands of years is a little puzzling to me. Well, yeah, what a comet really is is a dirty ice ball uh, or, or icy dirt ball which comes into the, toward the sun. Yeah. And as it, the closer it gets to the sun, the more it responds to the sun. Uh, the ices, so-called, on board, effectively, begin to react and turn to gases. Okay, and that's the tail of the comet. And that, Well, that's what forms the head of the comet. The head of the comet. The head of the comet and the tail of the comet as the sun's pressure pushes that, the, the gases and the dust behind the comet. So, so that's why some comets have these incredibly long and impressive tails uh, and, or, or extra large heads or comas. And that's all from the dust and the gases which are produced as this the comet comes into the... Okay, so there's this thing called a comet, which, when it's very far from the sun, does not look like what we see when we see a comet. No, it's just, it's just when it's far from the sun, all it is is a, it looks like An a barren An inert, ball. barren dirt ball. Yeah. Okay. 
when this inert, barren dirt ball comes near enough the sun, it begins reacting, and then it glows, and it gets the comb of the head and the tail, and it becomes what we think of as a comet. Exactly. Okay. And, and you ask what size. Well, part of the answer to that depends on that distinction between short-period comets yeah. and long-period comets, because uh, some comets, uh, nearly all short-period comets are quite small. You're talking, you know, you know, just a few kilometers in size, mm-hmm. and some are well, smaller. like Halley's comet. How big? I'm, I'm just wondering because you don't, we don't tend to think about these things. How big is it? Is the size of one of the moons of Mars, or it's, it's, it's quite small, as I recall. So seven, are they seven to nine kilometers in diameter? That's the, like that. that's smaller than the yeah. But just to start thinking about what is a comet. So there, you these... know, some, some, but some comets are are taking so long to go around. Uh, in their orbit, you know, they're coming in, they're loaded with these ices that are highly reactive. Uh, and I could correct you a little bit on something that you said, in the, in the sense you said you haven't seen a great comet. You have seen a great comet, but maybe didn't think of it as that great. And that was Comet Hale-Bopp uh, in 1997. Yeah. Uh, comet Hayakataki in 1996. Those were really Well, great technically comets. they're great comets, but I, I'm saying great in the generic sense that they, they didn't seem that great to me. <laughs> Uh, but but Hale-Bopp you know I mean. had, a, was, had a large comet and was, were main bright. In fact, Hale-Bopp is an important comet. Uh, it's an important comet for the discovery of the star of Bethlehem being a comet because really up until Hale-Bopp, uh, the longest that a comet had been in the scientific period had been observed to be, in, uh, be visible was about nine months, uh, the great comet of 1811. But then with Hale-Bopp, Hale-Bopp was visible for a total, uh, to the naked eye, that is, for 18 months. Now, that, that suddenly was comparable. It's comparable not only to the, to the Star of Bethlehem, but to what Josephus mentions in a passage uh, concerning the Judean War. He says that there was a comet that lasted for a year, and that was a, one of the things he said was an omen of the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. So, so there are these great comets. But you see, why that's important information the only comet that can remain visible for that long is a comet that is intrinsically bright. It's a comet, the only comets that are intrinsically bright are comets that are, generally speaking, that are large. So Hale-Bopp was a large comet, 40 to 70 kilometers in diameter. Now that's, uh, as comets go, it's quite big. Uh, the star of Bethlehem, similarly, if you think about it, and this was one of those kind of little... Uh, insights I had to get where I had to break through. It's actually very simple when you realize it, but it took me a while to realize it, that when Herod asks when the star first appeared, he is not asking when the star rose. The star rose much later on, and it was the rising of the star that caused the Magi to come to Jerusalem. Well, okay, so what does that mean when a star rises and a star appears, what, 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 well, because the, the, the it, appearance, to, to me it wouldn't mean anything. Well, if, if you look, and ancient astronomers uh, who looked at comets, for one thing, were uh, especially interested in the first appearance of the comet and what they called the rising of the comet. The appearance of a comet is pretty obvious, really, in that it's the first time they see the comet. Okay, right. Uh, usually it's very, very difficult to see, and only a, a, a trained astronomer would be capable of seeing it, someone who knows the stars. When there. it first appears. Okay, so, but what does it mean when a comet rises. The language of rising refers to a very special occasion in a celestial entity's history, really. Uh, For an ordinary star, an ordinary star rises in this sense. It's called, technically, a heliacal rising. What it really means is 
most stars will have a time during their annual career when they're not visible due to being too close to the sun. But then, slowly but surely, the sun appears to move through and move past it, and then the star becomes visible over the eastern horizon. Oh, you mean they move, it moves past the sun? And we're talking about appearances, yeah. Uh-huh. We're talking about yeah. the sun is moving. So the, 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 the star begins to reemerge okay. over the eastern horizon. You see it just for a moment. Over the eastern horizon? Yeah, eastern Always. horizon. Yeah. Well, in terms of an ordinary star, yes. Yeah. So, and then just for a moment, and then the sun's light extinguishes the view. Okay. And then from that point on, the star gradually becomes visible in a darker sky further from the sun. So that's what a Heliaco rising is for an ordinary star. And it's the most, the ancients regarded that as the most important moment in a star's annual history. Now, uh, when it comes to a comet, now a comet is the only entity whose Heliaco rising is dramatic and is surprising. Because every other Hiliaco rising is a very predictable thing. You know the brightness of it. You know it's not going to be very impressive visually. But a comet, you see, is making its closest pass by the sun. And when it's making its closest pass by the sun, it's, it's degassing, to use this language. The ices are being converted. It's sending off the dust. Okay, so, so, you, 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 the tail it's so close big. to the sun, it's passing on the other side of the sun or whatever. You can't see it, you can't see it, you can't see it. And then suddenly, boom, Well, no, no, not the, it, it's there. It's not that you can't see it, because they've seen it. They've been following it. Oh, oh, you mean if it hasn't been seen by the sun. Well, comets are a little different than ordinary stars. Ordinary stars are only gradually and slowly, just uh, according to the schedule, you know, they disappear for a, a okay. little while. Okay. Whereas a comet is moving quite quickly through the inner solar system, so visibly through the sky. Okay. It's usually not that long that it's invisible due to the sun. Okay. But then it reappears, however long it has been away, if it's coming close to the sun, then it's suddenly appearing... And at that point, when it's appearing, it's at its most dramatic okay. because it's degassing and yeah. producing the dust in this amazing way. And so when the Magi say, we have seen it start at its rising, um, that really is a big clue to it being a comet because only a comet at its rising is doing anything extraordinary and surprising. Uh, so that's a, a really a major thing. Uh, and, and we have many, and, uh, anyone that gets a book will see that most... Uh, most of the great comets in history similarly made uh, close passes by the sun, and there are these dramatic images of them uh, heliacally rising mm-hmm. uh, over the horizon. Okay, so, w- so what happens now? Again, you're, you're studying this. Um, you're, you're putting these different pieces together. What, what are the other pieces that come into play that make you realize this fits, this fits? And because the larger narrative here is that to figure out what the star of Bethlehem is, um, is is a huge discovery because it's helping us to see that the Bible is describing something that happened. This is not metaphorical. This is not fanciful. This happened, and here, for the first time in 2,000 years, we know roughly what happened and how it happened. And therefore, once again, the Bible has passed this test because I know that there are many people that would say, listen, who knows what happened? Uh, it doesn't, I don't expect it all to fit together. The idea that you pushed through and you were able to, to, to find this without forcing it, as you say, 
The, yeah, because the, the, because you you it's a wonderful thing when there, as you say, there's a surprising amount of information about the star, uh, not just about the first appearance, about the rising, about it moving, being perceived by the Magi to go in before them to Bethlehem. Yeah, d d describe these different pieces. I mean, they're these yeah. things that we forget. We hear it or we read it, but it doesn't register that the star went before them. You see, you have that the star has to really that language of rising means it was in, low in the eastern sky when at its rising. Uh huh. When they say that, it, when it says that it went before them toward Beth, when they were heading toward Bethlehem, so it's heading west. It has to, well, no, that's uh, south. So it's in the southern sky at that point. Uh huh. So that's that's telling them, and, and that they didn't see it before they went into Herod, but they see it afterward, and they see it quite high in the sky. That means most naturally that it's the evening and the sun's setting and the stars are appearing. So the comet is in the southern sky at that point, the southern evening sky. Okay. Well, that is a big clue because that's telling you that this entity is moving. So within the time of the Magi's journey, approximately a month, uh -huh. give or take a little, the, the star has moved from the, the, the eastern morning sky mm -hmm. to the southern evening sky. Okay. Only a comet can do that. Okay. Um, so then when, you're, when, you, when you start to put the picture together, then the comet, it says, stands over the place where the child is. See, that's another one of those things. When I read it, I thought, what a strange compelling uh, image, a star standing over where the child was. Uh, you know, I don't know what that means. It's like saying that the moon was over. It's, it's over everything. I mean, it's, what, what does that mean? Well, it, it's, it's standing over the house, pinpointing the location, because the most natural interpretation of the text, if we're honest, is that it is pinpointing the actual house where the baby is. Right, but how can that be when you're talking about something thousands and thousands of miles distant? Exactly. The answer is really, any, if, if you've ever seen a picture of a, of a long-tailed comet that is setting over the, over the horizon, uh, the comet, is, its tail is pointed straight up, or to, roughly straight up, and seems to be a pointer right down to a location on the horizon. I have lots of images in the book of this exact phenomenon. Uh, so it's a, the Magi are simply describing it as they saw it, as they perceived it. And the amazing thing is actually, if you look at the, the, the journals of uh, great travelers uh, in, that, that travel across wildernesses, you'll see some similar type language where they're, they talk about uh, entities in this kind of personal kind of way mm -hmm. um, of going before them, that kind of thing. But in this case, as Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, pointed out, and he's right, there only is one entity that can stand over something and be perceived to be pinpointing a precise location, and that is a comet which is uh, approaching setting on the horizon. Um, and so, you, you know, you start to put together the picture. The comet is first seen in the southern sky, and then it moves over to the western sky to set. And evidently, the Magi were the other side of this house, opposite where the comet... I mean, it, it, this is traveling from Jerusalem, from Herod's palace to Bethlehem? They, they travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Which is only a couple of miles, right? Well, it's, it's about six miles, so yeah. five or six miles. And so the comet is in the southern sky at that point. The big challenge they have, of course, is where is this child? And so we're told that when they look, they see the, the star standing over the place where the child is and going in, then they find the Messiah with his mother. So really every point standing over, I mean, really when you see the images or just Google great comets and you see this again and again, 
just standing over uh, the horizon. Uh, and it's a powerful image. And it's evidently, it, it makes perfect sense within the story of a comet. And again, uh, that, that, that the whole thing works out in that way and can all be explained with a single paradigm is really quite extraordinary. Um, you know, different people have suggested comets in the past, you know, Halley's Comet of 12 BC, it's just way too early. It wasn't visible for long enough, only 56 days. There was a comet the Chinese reported in 5 BC. Again, it's only visible for about 70 days, wrong part of the sky. But when you actually listen to the biblical text and let it drive the solution and let it tell you where the comet was and how long it was there, then suddenly you get it and you're able to put together the profile of the comet. And so there's nothing in the text that doesn't make sense to you or there's still some mysteries? Well, the the text is fully explained with what I'm saying by letting the text drive the search for data. Mm. Uh, I can't say that it was just the Star of Bethlehem, which was Matthew's text, which drove me. The other major factor is, of course, Revelation chapter 12. I mean, I've always had a passion for the book. Oh, of course, Revelation chapter 12. (laughs) It goes without saying. Uh, Except, what do you mean? Revelation chapter 12 has this, is this extraordinary text, which uh, talks about, um, it opens up by saying it's telling us a sign. And that word sign can actually also sometimes mean constellation, as a number of scholars have pointed out. But it is this very astronomical text. It talks about these two constellations, a woman and a dragon. It talks about the sun and the moon in reference to the woman. It talks about 12 stars in a crown. It talks about uh, a third of the stars being dislodged and thrown to the earth from the dragon. And this is the passage where, it, where it's describing a woman giving birth and then the, yeah. the dragon devouring or trying to the devour. baby, trying, trying to devour, to devour the, the baby just as it's born. So that's all from Revelation 12. Yes. And how do you read that? How do you see well, that? Well, what's, what's really fascinating about that text is it's talking about the birth of the Messiah. The Messiah. Because it's all about the Messiah being born and he's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter texts which were uh, by early Christians always taken to refer to Jesus and in fact Jesus is explicitly identified later on in the chapter. So why do we have a story of the nativity where it's clearly celestial? Well I was going to say and also why do we have a story of the nativity uh, at the end of the book? You know it's a funny thing that in Revelation we've got a story of something that's happened 90 years earlier uh, it, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it's puzzling and intriguing. It is intriguing. And, and, and again, it's one of those times when a, uh, scholars have noticed that it's astronomical language. They've struggled with it, but they've never really asked the question, why? Why is Revelation doing this? Well, there's, if you think about it, there's only one obvious answer. And that is that Revelation is describing the sign which occurred in connection with the Messiah's birth, uh, which was the sign announcing his arrival. Okay, and to those of us whom this is not immediately evident, can you explain how it is that Revelation 12 is describing this comet? Well, the comet at that point um, is the most natural explanation of mm. that text, simply because the, the, this baby is said, the, the, the pregnancy develops, it resu- results in uh, the Virgo, the virgin, the woman, uh, giving birth, and it's said to be a painful labor, 
and then the neighboring constellation, which is Hydra, the dragon, the serpentine dragon, responds by dislodging these uh, stars. Now that, if, you know, that's classic language for a me what's called a meteor storm, where, uh, in fact, the, during the great Leonid meteor storm, where a meteor storm is effectively where you have thousands, hundreds of thousands sometimes of meteors all coming at the one time. It's the most amazing, one of the most amazing experiences a human can witness. It literally looks like the stars are, 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 are coming down from the sky. And, and in 1833, many people thought that the end of the world had come. And some actually quoted this passage in Revelation, saying before our very eyes this had come true. It's telling you really a sequence of events. Mm -hmm. But how, how does that fit into what you know of this, this period? Yeah. I mean, do we know... Do we know that uh, astrologically and astronomically that these things, in fact, happened uh, well, what, what, at 3 BC? Or well, what, what, what we can say is uh, it gives us very precise information. The sun and the moon can only be in their respective locations within the, uh, relation to Virgo, the constellation, yeah. at a very particular day mm -hmm. in, a, in a particular year, September the 15th, uh, 6 BC. It's that precise we're able to say because that it, it, just because of the way it works, there's only one day when that when it's what's described in Revelation 12, verse one. Now that was known occurred. before you came to it. Well, some people have talked about things that they, that they haven't. They kind of almost got that, but not quite. Is that what the Larson DVD says that you were talking? Larson about? DVD would talk about uh, would gets it takes it in a different direction and uh, has hasn't found the proper time when this really occurs mm. because okay. at the point he's talking about, the moon isn't really under the feet of uh, the virgin. Okay. Um, uh, regardless, uh, he, he's taken it in a slightly different way and not really noticing the broader context because yeah. the broader context is about a birth okay. and it's telling the sign is of a birth in the heavens. And so what, the only way to explain it is that there is a, a comet, a great comet, which is appearing in Virgo's belly and grows in Virgo's belly and then is born in Virgo. Now, that sounds, that, that's, that's an extraordinary thing. Well, when you tell an astro a comet astronomer that, the comet astronomer immediately says, well, I know what happened. Because for that to occur, a comet has to be in a particular, the comet Earth and Sun have to be in a particular relationship. See, because the Earth is obviously moving on its orbit. The comet is moving on its orbit. And yet the two have to be working in concert so that the comet has to appear to be stable within a particular location in the sky. So that's very actually precise information it's telling you. And the other thing, of course, is that can only happen in the eastern sky. And when, when this is when the actual this, this story is a Hiyako rising as the comet is appearing after its encounter with the sun. So it's exactly what Matthew 2 is saying, and it's exactly the profile of a comet that we discern from Matthew's account. Because the comet, remember we said in Matthew 2, um, it appeared over a year ahead of time. That, that meant it had to be a great comet. Yeah. Not just a great comet, but a, an intrinsically bright and large comet. Yeah. That's exactly what it has to be in order to achieve this. Now, you, t you know, part of what makes this so impressive is that you are a biblical scholar who has also clearly mastered the world of astronomy to the extent that you're able to write this book and have these conversations and confuse many of us, although we, we're still interested. But to, to, to know these things... So you, you, you said to me that you had gone to Armagh and you had worked uh, with 
astronomers, and you talked to them about this, and learned much from them, but did any of them get excited by this? Well, I, I, I was amazed by how receptive the astronomical community was uh, to me as I came in, really, um, as, a, as a someone unknown to them, uh, and I was in di- dialogue with uh, some of the guys from the Armagh observatories, really some of the best comet astronomers in the world, um, and uh, they invited me up to talk as I was dialoguing with them. And it really was the most amazing experience of my life, to be honest. Um, we sat for seven hours, and I gave the input from what the biblical text was saying, uh, and they were giving me the astronomical dimensions of that. And it really it was just a dynamite. It was, it was just incredible dynamic. Uh, I was just wired at the end of it. It was just an amazing experience. And that was really a critical moment as they kind of guided me uh, and took me out to their human orrery, which is really where you walk around uh, taking someone plays the role of Earth, someone plays the role of a I've never comet. heard of this. What is that called? A human orrery. It's, it's a really neat thing. How do we spell orrery? Well, well let me just explain what it is. You, you, you you're don't know walking, how, do you? you? Exactly. You're walking around. He, it was, what was really fun is, because I, I was going to them and saying, well, how can I explain how a comet can be in the virgin's womb? How can I explain? How does that happen? Because yeah. at that stage, I didn't really understand it. And they said, okay, you be the comet. You stand here and be the comet. And they chose a, a, an appropriate type of comet. And then they took other positions around this. And where, do they, where do they do this? Out in a field, in a room? No, they or? have a special place uh, uh, in just outside the observatory. So that was a really incredible thing because it's, I started to get it. Some of this stuff is, can be difficult to get your mind around. I've tried to explain it as simply as I can in the book, but really to, for me at that stage, to walk around and play the different to parts. To play the role of the comet. Yeah, it really what, helps you see it. What was your motivation as an actor? Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, heralding the Messiah, of course, uh, which is what your motivation seems to be generally. I think uh, it's just an extraordinary thing to me that uh, you did all this, and w- was there ever a moment that, that, that you were giddy that you had come upon a great historical discovery that in these centuries no one has said what this is. I mean, it seems to me that um, you, you ought to be able to uh, enjoy this gift because, you know, uh, it's not enough to be bright and willing. I mean, you, you know, to, to, uh, <laughs> to actually have been able to be the person to bring this to the world it seems to me that at some point it must have dawned on you. Or I'm well, wondering. it dawned on me in stages. Uh, initially, I kind of realized I was hitting gold, to be honest, at an early stage of it. I realized this is, you know, this is just, this is really neat. And I just couldn't believe that no one had really developed it because it seemed quite straightforward, taking it from Matthew, that you just taking Matthew at face value and, you know, not, not backing away from it at any point. And then I'm looking at it and going, when I, when I started to realize... Initially, I actually thought it might be a short period comet in a very early stage, like a a puny type of comet, but that was doing something pretty magnificent. But then uh, the more uh, Gary Kwonk, who's the author of uh, six-volume comatography, came alongside, helped me a bit, and gave me some guidance, and pointed me, said, no, it's really not a short period comet. This is is a long period comet we're talking about here. And and, and as Gary Kwonk... um, kind of prompted me in that direction, I started, suddenly a lot of the things started to come together. I realized that it, 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 the comet was a retrograde comet. There's only a retrograde. That means going, what is that? That means going clockwise around the sun rather uh-huh. than... 
And that sounds like... Do most of them do that? No, but half and half. half but and it was a big thing because I was assuming when I was trying to work it out, prograde, I just couldn't figure it. And suddenly it dawned on me, retrograde. And as soon as I plugged that in, it, it was, that was one of those moments. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is it. This is what they saw. This is why this is happening. And, this is, and then at that point, you can work out... Um, you can work out a lot about it, uh, about the comet, and about the profile of it, and then even develop the orbit uh, in an approximate way, which enables you to actually recreate then what the Magi saw, where the star was when it first appeared, what it looked like, its brightness. And Gary Cronk and I both did brightness calculations to work out its peak brightness. And so it peaked at a brightness approximately of the brightest comets in the last few centuries. Um, and it really is, and then you can work out, using the latest astronomical research, the approximate length of the comet, the size of the comet. Uh, and so you can tell the whole story from start to finish uh, and, and then even recreate what it would have looked like standing over the horizon. And uh, September 15th, it would have been at its brightest? No, September the 15th is, is just a point that it's, uh, that it's pinpointed in Revelation, but uh-huh. that's, it, that's before it's actually heliacally rising. Because remember, the, the sun there is said to be over her, uh, clothing her. So that's the clue that it's in the aftermath of that. When the sun, when it's you mean in, Re- in Revelation, it says the sun is clothing her. Yeah. And that's all. Uh, so, so uh, when is Christmas? <laughs> Roughly. That's a, big, that's, that's a big question, and I, I, I personally think I want to leave that for people to buy the book. Wow. <laughs> well, here's the good news: the book is worth buying. So, um, it's uh, even the even the pictures in the book are so beautiful. Uh, the idea that there are. That, that there is this history of comets through the centuries. Um, uh, doesn't the Bayeux pa- tapestry have a comet on it? You know, it, it's, it's an extraordinary thing, and you can imagine particularly what the ancients or people in the Middle Ages would have thought. To see these celestial signs, it would be awesome and frightening, I think. And as I said, in my lifetime unless I wasn't paying attention when, when Hale-Bopp was flying around. I don't think that I've ever seen anything like this. And so in the ancient world, clearly it would have been very dramatic and overwhelming. It is, and, and, and they, they, it is very interesting to look because we have a couple of sources, Ptolemy and Pliny, that tell us how they interpreted comets, uh, which is also very interesting and very compatible with what Matthew's saying. Uh, and we also have this... Uh, they, they, how, how they looked upon them and how they're looking at the shape of them. What do they look like? Where are they in the sky? Uh, so all of these things which actually match very well uh, with, this, with this whole thing, and it helps you interpret it when you're recreating the orbit. You're able to say, well, at this point, they're probably thinking this. Um, Did you ever figure out the period of this comet? No. You can, you, well, it's, impossible to figure, well, it's impossible to figure that out. It's the one piece of data, but funny enough, it doesn't. in terms of an orbit... That's for the, for the purposes of this book, that's the one piece of information that's not that important because it doesn't, when it's just in the inner solar system, the, that, that value which is called eccentricity, the precise eccentricity doesn't matter that much. So no, we don't, so that's important because we don't know when it's going to return or if it's going to return. I mean, what is the largest orbit of, of a comet conceivably? Oh, well, a comet can be, uh, have a, an encounter with a planet which... Uh, gravitational effect will knock it into destroy it. A, yeah, not necessarily destroy or knock it, it beyond the solar system, knock it so that it can't. Return. So it can disappear. Yeah, uh, right. So, so where's so, this comet now? Wouldn't you like to know? Well, yeah, yeah that's. A I good, guess it's having the last laugh because we don't know. 
Well, it's, it's an interesting question, and again, that value, as in how large the period was, right. would determine where exactly it is. But you can, you can work it out roughly if it, did, if it has an extra long period. You can say roughly where it would be. Right. Is there anything else in Scripture like this? I mean, or actually, let me ask you this other question. Has this been a significant question or mystery? I mean, we know that in science, I'm sorry, in, um, in math... There are these things that are waiting to be solved, and they're not solved for centuries, and then perhaps someone solves it, but they're famous. Um, was this a well-known conundrum waiting to be solved by biblical scholars, or was it something that most biblical scholars had semi-permanently put to the side? Yeah, yeah, the biblical scholars have really not been that interested, generally speaking, uh, in the Star of Bethlehem, and they left that really to the astronomers the occasional historian or uh, someone else that happened to be interested in it. The unfortunate thing about that is it meant that when some biblical scholars talked about the astronomy, they did so in a way that showed they didn't really understand it and made a lot of statements, dogmatic statements, which, which you know, just aren't correct. Um, so it's actually kind of fun being a biblical scholar who knows a bit of astronomy because it's really, you know, it's my own, it's my own little world now, so I, I, can, I can see things that maybe some other scholars can't see. Well, you, but you learned astronomy. In other words, you, you, 10 years ago, you weren't a student of astronomy. Exactly. No, I, I, had to, I had to build up a library of astronomy. I had to, mercifully, astronomers are very good about leaving their articles for open access. Um, you, you had, I had to get and, lots and of astronomy software. And lucky for software. you, the, the fellows at the Armagh Observatory exactly. just happened to be Irish. Well, not, not, not actually Irish. No? But, uh, no, but, well. they, but very, very, thankfully, they were very gracious and sacrificial. Um, and, you know, they were doing calculations uh, for me. I mean, one of the, the neat things is we were talking earlier about the, this meteor storm radiating from the dragon's tail. Well, that information, when you, when you put that information in, you can work out what the orbit is of the meteoroid stream, which would have given rise to that, uh, that meteor storm which is quite, quite fascinating, really, because really what you're doing then is you're, you're, science becomes, or astronomy becomes a means of shedding light on the biblical text. Um, so I, I think it's wonderful because it's the first time, really, you know, if, if you were making a movie uh, of the Christmas story, uh, up to now you were kind of just guessing when it came to the star. Now you're able to say, you know, th- at this time the star would have been doing this, it looked like this, this is how it, how it was developing at any given stage, this is what it looked like. And then you can tell the whole story of the Magi and even work out their logic and work out why they turned to the Old Testament texts that they did because those texts uh, really were required, in a sense, to understand what they were seeing before them. And, and, and to answer a question you asked a long time ago, in Babylon, what did they know about uh, the Messiah? You've yeah. got to remember there's a lot of Jews in Babylon. And those Jews They are, would have known. All right. Are, are so then culturally in. speaking... Um, the... the the, the poetry of this is what I find particularly powerful and moving. The idea that uh, if this is true, and there's no reason to believe that it's not utterly true, that uh, the God of the universe, uh, the God of the Bible, uh, paints with stars and planets and comets, tells a story in the heavens most people of faith don't think about astrology or astronomy. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, only think of, of astrology as something that is the, you know, precinct of cranks and that it's a fatalistic 
uh, it's just something to be avoided like necromancy or sorcery. But when you realize that there's an, there's a, there's an art, there's a history of reading signs in the heavens when we're talking about Virgo, the virgin, we're talking about, you know, that's the kind of thing that typically people of faith haven't paid any attention to. So the idea that there's this other level of depth to scripture uh, and that we can study science to learn about what the Bible is saying. And it would seem to me that these astronomers and other people would must, at least some of them, get chills to think that this ancient book is somehow telling them some things. That, that really is yeah. pretty amazing. Who wrote this book of Revelation? What kind of a person was this? And where did he get this information from? And how is it possible that this corresponds with what we top astronomers know about the movement of these heavenly bodies. That's, it's a really oh, dramatic... It's, it's, it's amazing, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it's even more amazing when you put it this way. There they are looking at this comet, which they've observed. Now, anybody that's a comet hunter, and there are lots of great comet hunters out there still today who find comets even before the, the, the big telescopes, uh, you know, the organized, big organizations, telescopes get them. Um, now, when they, oftentimes, a comet will be named after them. Right. Uh, in fact, Hale Bopp, the guy, Thomas Bopp, uh, was a believer, and he was worshipping God as he was viewing the heavens when he suddenly do- st- spotted this comet, so the comet was named after him. And he, like every comet hunter, feels a great sense of uh, belonging and, and ownership, in a sense, over that comet. Yeah. And so these magi are going to be like that, and at the same time, they see this comet act the part of a baby, in a nativity scene in the heavens. And then they follow this comet. Okay, that hasn't been really that clear before. They get that. In other words, they're watching this comet being, as it were, born. Being born, uh, yeah. Out of the womb of a virgin. Yeah, in the heavens. They get that. Well, that's an, that's an amazing thing. And Revelation 12 even hints at the kind of paradigms that a lot of ancients uh, would use to, to get that, because that's picking up in some ancient mythology uh, to, to convey the point of what's going on. But they're forced then to understand that this is the Messiah. They're forced to look at a couple of Old Testament texts which highlight um, that there, they, when the Messiah came, there would, be this great, um, there would be this great scepter, this great star. So the star, the, the, uh, the, the comet, the head of the comet, and then the tail of the comet is meant to look like a scepter? Part of it was the comet as a whole would have formed something as a scepter. That's actually very interesting because scepters in the ancient world were straight, long, essentially rods that were symbolic of kingship and authority. Uh, For comets, a lot of comets are very curved. But the comets that aren't curved are the comets which are narrowly inclined to the ecliptic. Now, that's a big phrase, meaning it's basically in terms of inclination. It's like the planets, it's orbiting in the same kind of angle as uh-huh, the planets uh-huh. and the Earth. And so when, when you've got a straight comet, you've got a long-tailed comet, and you have a comet which is narrowly inclined. So that's reinforcing the message. And you're thinking that this was a straight-tailed comet? It, it has, it, once you've got a narrowly inclined comet, which okay. is what Revelation okay. and Matthew okay. are describing, okay. it has to be straight-tailed, yeah. Well, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's extraordinary. Uh, we're almost out of time. What do you think is going to happen now? This is going to come out, um, I guess, as people see this or, or whatever. It's, 
this is now going to be revealed to the world. The world has never known that there was a plausible uh, explanation for all of these disparate descriptions of this phenomenon in the Gospels. Now we seem to have a um, dramatically plausible explanation for the first time ever. What, what do you think will happen now? What do you think well, the reception will be? Will people be surprised, it's shocked, very important angry? For, yeah, it's very important for astronomers because, of course, this is like a heelbop type comet, only slightly bigger, which is coming close to the sun. Well, that's something that we know did happen because we know of, a, of a, one particular comet that did that exactly that, that was very large also. Uh, but that's of great scientific interest, uh, among other things because astronomers are worried about comets that come too close to Earth. This comet did come close to Earth. So that leaves a lot of astronomers a little, a little shaken by the thought. That's, what they, that's their nightmare what, uh, why? scenario. Why? Uh, well, because they don't want the Earth to be hit by a comet and utterly destroyed. Well, they don't want any other crazy religion to get started. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so astronomically, it's, it's actually of great importance. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, you have the, the, the biblical uh, side, which, yes, does authenticate Matthew as a gospel writer, because if anything in Matthew's gospel is doubted, it's the story of the star. Really? That's until with, yeah, until now? Once you, put, once you show that, no, this, in spite of how many people have mocked the star, once you show, no, every detail there is explicable perfectly with reference to modern astronomy. And not only that, but, but the amazing thing that Revelation 12's data fits perfectly with Matthew 2. That's extraordinary. You know, comets can do anything, really. So to have two, comet, two descriptions of comet, and you take the Revelation 12 data, plug it into astronomy software, and out comes a description which is in perfect accord with everything Matthew 2 describes. It's truly extraordinary. Are, did any of these astronomers that you spoke with uh, have, their, have their faith... Uh uh, needle moved uh, in this. The fact that it's not just Matthew 2, which would be amazing, but that then you go to Revelation, you know, different authors separated by many decades, different genres, completely different genres, saying something uh, pointing in one direction. It just seems to me that if any of them got this, they must have been at least slightly shaken. Well, you know, I, I, when I'm doing research like this, I don't, I, I don't bring that to the table. Yeah. Uh, I keep it strictly... Uh, professional and strictly academic yeah. um, and they're doing it because of their belief in the academic enterprise but, uh, but it's so, just so yeah. funny that the, you know, the fundamental text is the Bible that the fact, I guess the fact that they even took you seriously enough oh, it's to amazing. go through this yeah, with yeah. you is very impressive and very generous and, uh, of, of them in a way to be willing to, and, to entertain and they were, you know, they were excited. Idea. they were excited by it I mean it's, it is exciting you yeah. can't sit down and, des- and describe this and they're going but I know what that means and, yeah. and so suddenly what they you know maybe some of them thought that the Bible was, was, a, was a bit boring and, and out of date and they're suddenly going but wait a minute that's, that's exciting information and yeah. Revelation 12 similarly wow there's an astronomical section there that's clearly astronomical the inter- interdisciplinary nature of uh, you know what we were doing uh, was exciting for them, exciting for me, and I attempted to do according to the highest levels of, of academic research. So, you know, I, I, again, I was trying to exclude any kind of religious dimension in terms of our discussions. But we were treating the Bible as a, as a source of historical information and seeking to be uh, faithful to 
it as it was meant. Because, and one of the things is, you know, the, the scholars that, that, that essentially poo-poo the biblical text, a lot of what they're doing is really feeling to take into account the genre. Because the biblical, the Gospels are now widely recognized to be theological biographies, ancient biographies, which are known to have a historical interest. Mm. And much like Tacitus and Suetonius, the historians writing about things in the relatively recent past, mm-hmm. they had a concern for accuracy. And so, uh, you know, once you put that into the equation, you really should be reading Matthew at face value and with respect for the historical claims that he text, that he makes. And, w- and once you put this all in and you realize, my goodness, this all makes perfect sense. The simple truth is, in my opinion, there's no way any ancient could have invented it. It was just not possible. It would be a, a, a joke to even suggest it. Because to have the comet do the things that it does, it really is, a, a, in a sense, a complicated... It's simple because it's an orbit, but it's complicated in the sense of working out, you know, right. how could this be? Right. You just wouldn't it, make it It's up. much too complicated yeah. to, to invent. Um, <laughs> I guess... Uh, what this whole thing is, it, it ends up being at least a very powerful apologetic for the Bible uh, and for the authors of the Bible and their um, ability to, to speak clearly about things. Uh, th- that's, it's really powerful. Well, I, I just have to say, um, you know, Colin, thank you uh, and congratulations. This is a very big deal. When I read it, I knew that uh, I, I had to... Uh, uh, interview you, uh, had to meet you at some point. This is, this is a huge deal. It's a very rare thing uh, that this kind of um, book or discovery would happen. This doesn't happen every year or even every five or ten years. This is really significant. So I'm excited for you and I'm excited for what, what lies ahead. I just cannot wait uh, to see the responses and I, I feel privileged to be here at the beginning of it all. Uh, so Maybe now we can end with a, a rousing round of applause for our guest, Colin Nichol. Thank you. I really, terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.